Welcome to the Dear Lovejoy podcast. It's a special. Uh, Today we have a conversation with Russell Kane, top comic, nice bloke, funny. Um, Must warn you though, this interview or this conversation we have with him is a lot of language in it, a lot of swearing in it. Um, Top shelf. Top scale. Top scale. The, yeah. I mean the big one. Yeah, he goes he goes for it all. So um just but it's all in context. It's yeah, it's yeah. I mean it's funny, he makes us laugh a lot, it's really good, but but be careful if you are sitting there with children and yeah. you don't want bad language, then um maybe listen to this later. Um unless you don't mind your children listening to this sort of language, but it is quite heavy language. So um His piece of advice at the end is something else. Yes. <laughs> from his nan. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, the advice from his nan is is gold dust. And uh, yeah, he gives quite a lot of advice, actually. If you're a stand-up comic, he'll give you a bit of advice. But also, I, I think just in terms of, because we all have to do it in our jobs now and again, public speaking is really hard. We, we find, a lot of us find it very difficult. Um, he, he, he makes you feel like you can, I wanted to go and do some straight after. He sort of gives you a, he gives you so many sort of bits of advice and tips to to make you think, ah, I might be able to do this now. Yeah, it's great. Overall, it's really funny. Let's listen to him. Here's Russell. This is just a guide to modern life. Modern life is hard to get just right. It can frustrate you and annoy, and if it does, right into dear love joy. Russell Kane, welcome to my kitchen. It's Thank lovely. you for coming. How are you? Where are we? Are we in southwest London somewhere? Oh, west London. West, west London. London. I put my head down in the taxi and when I woke up, we, it was houses that were probably about 2p 50 years ago and peasants lived in them. But now they're sort of ironic and terraced. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it was only 8.5 million. It's lovely. Yeah. Can you just move? I just need to get through to the living room. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That is London for you in a postage, postage stamp size garden. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was in, I was in Clapham for a while and I've got a, I've got a flat in Islington it's just crazy it's gone crazy and I've just moved up to Cheshire and what you get I mean it's honestly it's crazy what you get for the money up there and what's it like living up there it's uh to be honest with you I don't actually know yet because my tour finished in July the 27th I worked out I've had one period where I've made more than three nights in a row at home since March when I moved in one and that's recently since I thought oh the tour's going to finish in July I'll be sat round you know just eating curries watching movies hanging with my family and of course the second the tour finished all the other stuff I couldn't do before was like started filling the diary up Apprentice has restarted all these other programs have restarted um, corporate gigs, gigs here and there in the diary. Just went, it's like my diary is like a chimp <laughs> shat into his own hand and thrown it at the wall. You'll be in Glasgow on Tuesday and then Tuesday afternoon you'll be in Morocco. What I don't get about London, <laughs> what I don't get about London is how any any of our kids, you just met a couple of mine, are the twins, yeah. but you know, how they're going to afford to live in London. I don't know yeah. how, I can't see an end to it. They're going to have to live here, aren't they? Well, forever. ours will be fine because of the children of elites, but for everyone else... <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Elite. Okay, you might be. I'm not. Now no, listen. No, you can't. You can't really. But uh, you know, maybe the maybe the technocratic future we live in, you won't really need to. You just sort of log on. Your iris will be scanned, and your matrix pump will go in, and that's it. And work will be done. You live. You live in the in the um in the internet. Right. Uh, all guests who come on this show get a present. I like Ooh. to buy them a present. Uh, and I I found you. I think a brilliant present because I was in a shop the other day. Mark, if you like to buy it, and I walked past this. Um, you were when you were on Sunday brunch recently. We were 
we, we were in a, a meat section, didn't we, in the yes. show, where I called it, what did I call it, Billabong. We were yes, doing jerky right. and biltong. And we did Billabong. Please don't tell me you bought me an Australian musical <laughs> But the thing with Billabong is I said it and I looked over and your face and everyone's face was like, oh, what has he said there? And I thought, oh, I've said something racist I didn't know if you'd done it something. on purpose. No, I like, hadn't. Sort of dad banter. No, I hadn't. Have some of your billabong, billabong. there. What are you But then, so. you, know how you know when you're on live TV and your mind starts calculating, I'm like, what have I said? What have I said? Yeah, what have exactly. I said? But you loved it. Anyway, you loved you loved meats like jerky and stuff like that. So I was in this shop the other day and I walked past this sausage and I looked at the price and this is a Spanish sausage. The woman says it's brilliant. And it's £9.95. And I thought, that has got to be really, that's an expensive sausage that, yeah. isn't it? It's like a salami I've got here. That's um, amazing. Thank so you. So I bought you that, but I bought another wow. one because I thought what we could do is we could try it because I thought, I wonder what a £10 salami, I mean, it's only small, isn't it? I'm describing this now. It's only a small sausage, but it's... So it's a salki, is it legitimo? Where's it from? Spain. Spain or Catalonia. It's a ca- yeah. Let's break off the Catalonian bit. <laughs> so, so oh my God, part of my sausage is seceding from the other... <laughs> So I said to the woman, is this worth £10? And she looked at me, smiled and went, yeah. So I clearly think it's not. But look, can I pass that over you to you? Can. And you can give that a go. I knew there would have to be a food element. Yeah, well, it's kind of... Some of them, some of them have this dodgy outer skin that you, you only realise halfway through eating. Peel this, do you think? Anyway. Yeah. You do. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, it's quite, that's delicious. I know it? eating on a podcast is probably profoundly irritating, oh, but that... That's good oh stuff, isn't it? Now it's going straight to my guns. <laughs> I can feel it seriously that, that was good. that's How? a millimetre of lean muscle mass how is your diet at the moment you, you, you're careful with it aren't you mm. not not if you go to a traditional healthcare pr- practitioner like a doctor any doctor under any doctor over about 40 years old would think that I am profoundly unhealthy I eat more butter than anyone I know I go through more lard dripping I cook in ghee. I mean, loads of good yeah. ghee, organic ghee. I eat a lot of red meat, a lot. And I probably eat about 30 eggs a week. So that to most people, our parents' generation and most of my generation, are like, oh my God, bro, aren't you worried about cholesterol? I'm like, yeah, that's why I eat lots of it. It's one of the best things you can eat. Yeah. Good cholesterol. So, so it depends how you define healthy. <clears throat> living, on, living on rabbit food with pale skin and being miserable is not for me. I, do you know what? I, I, I listened to a podcast recently where they were that sort of diet you're talking about is a diet that they actually endorse. And so mm. it's, it's not. So I don't know where we are with it at the moment. But the person on the podcast said it's up to governments now to start really researching food because we don't really know where we're at with it. There's a, mm. lot of, there's a lot of science going different ways with it. So we should just do some research. The, the main problem, in my opinion, is... Um, you've got a lot of people saying, just look at the statistics, bro. If you eat too much red meat, you're going to get bell cancer. And it's undeniable. Every study that's ever been done, um, people who eat lots of red meat are more likely to get certain types of cancer than other. Sadly, all they've done is pour all types of meat from the worst sort of concentration camp abattoir with insulin-injected beef mixed in with grass-fed. We have, no one has ever bothered to ask the question, is there a difference between meat that was injected with poison and meat that wasn't? All Which right. for me seems quite an obvious question to yeah. ask. So, um, so when you're shopping for meat, you're always going for the good stuff, the yeah. organic stuff. All right, let's talk about you then. Um, uh, let's, can we just start at the beginning just so I can get... I, can, I like talking to you about comedy because you, you know your stuff and you love it. Where, where did it all start for you? Why did you 
decided to become a comic in the first place? Well, the uh, the Gladwellian answer would be, I had no idea I was practising being a stand-up. Now, you know, you have to do these yeah, 10,000 yeah. hours, which I never did before I started doing big gigs. So people are like, bro, don't you feel like you've cheated the system? Well, no, <laughs> because five years old, I was front of the class, always been the class clown, always been the, the best man's speech, a sister, if not the best man himself, always the one cracking jokes. Didn't know what I was practising, is the answer. Right. Come from a, not getting the violin out, never felt deprived as a child, but I grew up in a, uh, initially, a, a started life, a, the very started life in a, it's a shelter for women that have had babies and have got nowhere to live. That was where I actually started life and my dad would visit in the evening. He was, my dad was a, a sheet metal worker and a thermal insulation engineer. It's one of the hardest jobs you can do, putting fiberglass lagging on the outside of pipes and crawling up in people's lofts and all that itchy stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what my dad did. Um, and then we got a council flat. We lived in that for five years. And then we got a council house. And then we bought our own council house. And so that was it. So in that childhood, up till I was about 16, 17, it, it, this is just before Live at the Apollo was a thing. It was originally Jack D Live at the Apollo, right? That's when right. it started. I don't know what year that was. 2004-ish, something like that. Mm -hmm. 2002, I don't know what it was. But prior to that, stand-up, if you come from a council estate, working-class background like me, was Jimmy Jones, Jim Davison, Bernard Manning, the stuff your dad laughed at. My dad actually liked all that as well as Laurel and Hardy, the Three Stooges. So it wasn't that I, I wasn't in the back and you see Reese's dead like eating tubs of hummus because it wasn't even part of my vocabulary then. <laughs> I just, it just didn't make me laugh. It wasn't about my life, like fat old man yeah. blacking up or laughing at boobs. You know, I was running around with my friends, starting to go to raves and stuff. So comedy had no connection, part, touch, shade in any area of my life from the moment I was born until the age of 19. I'm the opposite to most comedians you'll meet. Like, As a kid, I used to watch Richard Pryor and I always knew. I've got none of those stories because I didn't <laughs> always know. Yeah. I was just the funny guy at school, the, the guy who wanted to be in the school play, the guy who liked female attention if they were laughing. Even during sex, ha, 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 I'm coming. And uh, <laughs> no, but so that was my connection. I had no respect for comedy because I didn't know it. Didn't know what the Edinburgh Festival was. Never heard of it. Then I'm trying to give you, I'm trying to give you the short story, but only the full biography will do. <laughs> Age 19, I had, a, me and my dad, go to watch my stand-up if you want to know about my dad. We're just opposite people. He's, you know, your typical yeah. shaving. He was a bouncer. He was a weightlifter. He was a bodyguard. He was a steroid-using Essex nut job with fighting gloves hanging up on the wall just in case. He made nunchucks down his shed and sold them at the pub. He was a double <laughs> hard bastard, right? And my mum was a cleaner and childminder. Just didn't, we didn't know anything about culture and stuff. Um, but we, that was quite right wing. I wasn't lefty. I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah? I had yeah. no education. I was bright until 11 and then dumped in a comprehensive, which means everyone gets a C grade. Um, so, but I started going out with this girl. This is awful to even speak about this, really. I started going out with this girl and her ex was black. Well, that was, she was white, but her ex was black. Well, that was enough for my dad. She's not coming in this house, right? Normally, I wouldn't wow. use language like this on stage, but the... Uh, do you want me to water down the stuff he said? Or? Uh, but, uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> he, he basically said bad stuff. Like, right. He, he came up with quite um, 
colourful reasons for okay. why, what would happen if this girl came into the house. And he right. drew his imagery from the comedians of the past, shall right. we say. Okay. He'll be this and that. Your mother will be dragged down the stairs and attacked by his cousins. He'll be in the ass to get her back. And I was like, Dad, you're talking, what, are you mental? I thought he was joking at first. And I went, look, I pay... I paid a ridiculous sum of money to still live at home with my mum and dad, something like a quarter of my wages to live, to, just to use my bedroom. I was By now I was selling watches. I've always had a passion for watches because of it. I was working in a watch show and my dad was like, you can't bring an house. I went, I pay to live here. And he went, you don't pay for shit. This is my fucking house. And I was like, right, I move out tonight. Tonight I move out. So I did. I went to work, came home, got my stuff, went across the park, moved in with my nan, who was a totally different character. This is my mum's yeah. mum, a weed smoking, hard drinking, alcoholic to the point she was like a crippled pepper army stick with grey hair on. <laughs> Got out of bed, you know, I'm not dressing sure I should down. Be laughing at that, but complete <laughs> fuck animal, fuck life, take life by the fucking like like that, but sort of lefty yeah. version if you like. But she would never have used the word lefty. And so, of course, I became the hero because all my mates we had somewhere to go in the evening. We was around my nan's house. It's not smoking weed, not me. Obviously, I don't do drugs, BBC, and. Uh, <laughs> And that it was my nan in the weirdest way possible that sort of gave me the courage to leave. It sounds like something from a Jane Austen novel. Was it to leave my class? The final part of the ingredient was I was I was going working in the watch shop, and I was going clubbing at the weekends. Strawberry Sundays in Vauxhall, not far from where we're recording this banging hard house night. I used to come home at six a.m. every every Sunday. Just beautiful girl just came across the dance floor, and we just got it got it on. Started a relationship. Her name was and she was posh. And she was like, yeah, man, it's my last summer before I start uni in September. And so, of course, when I was seeing her, I was waking up in halls because we were going back yeah. to hers. And of course, I suddenly saw it. Out on the lawn was a bunch of people my age, two arms, two legs, looked like me, reading books, using the same brain I had, even though I was doing nothing with it, sat around, getting out, walking across with wine. I'm like, you've been complete, you have been fucked over by an accident of your birth. Uh -huh. I'm like, I'm... I'm 20 years old. It's not too late. So it's just before the internet. So this is, dates the story. What is this? 96, 95, 96. So there was internet, but you weren't on it. I, I sent off for A-levels through the post because I hadn't, I, I fucked mine up. But I've got GCSEs nat yeah. with my natural gifts and studied A-levels out of a box in my nan's house in the box room, I had no wardrobe, and I would go out, I'd still party, and I would do sociology A-level out of a box. I had to wait till I was 21, because you're classed as a mature student. I sat in the sociology exam round the corner at Enfield College as a separate student, invigilated in a separate room, watched over, got the fastest and highest A grade in history. I don't know if the record's been beaten, because I was so angry about class. Right. So to do sociology, and that was it, bang, went to university, got the only first class honors degree in my year for English. Left it, walked straight into advertising, was the first, the, the quickest person to become head of copywriter in this particular ad agency. It's been the same ever since. What? It was like someone said, look behind this curtain, mate. Yeah. And, and you pull it back and there's an Ibiza party happening and you're sat in your lounge <laughs> drinking Horlicks. I was like, you cunts. <laughs> and I was like, and I went in. And of course, when I started at the ad age, I went to the one university that had no comedy society. Right. So when I got to the uni and everyone saw us this weird, energetic person that could make anyone laugh, someone just said to me, have you thought about doing stand-up as a hobby in the evening? Never had occurred to me. It was that lax how I did it. Went to a laptop. I went to the, we had one computer in the creative department. Googled comedy. Googled London. Clicked the first link. Phoned the first number. Comedy Cafe. Rivington Street. How'd you try stand-up? 
oh, we have an open spot night on the Wednesday. And I went. And that was it. As soon as I went on stage, I was like, fuck, I'm good at this. And he was like, a lot of the comedians are in Edinburgh. I had no clue what Edinburgh was. Yeah. I thought that was all ballet and opera and stuff. But how did you write your first stuff then? Or I just did just what ad-lib? If I was in the pub with my mates and we bumped into yeah. a new group of lads, what story would I throw in to make sure everyone thought, oh, he's the funny one? So I just told that story about my nan walking in on me banking one Sunday <laughs> morning when I got in from clubbing. <laughs> which, was, which turned into a big, big routine in, in the end. I ended up finessing it and it became part why, of it. Why is it, do you think, we're obsessed with class in this country still, aren't we? And we're obsessed with staying in our class. Why do you think it is? Because it's still the strongest indicator of where you will be when you're 30. I just met your daughters. You, you could meet my daughter and by, by virtue of where I am socioeconomically, you can more or less guess where she'll be when she's my age. That's got to be wrong, isn't it? Not, yeah. not her talents, but how, yeah, but where people, I am, what but, sort of house I've got, decides how she And a few freaks like me just climb through. Yeah, but why, aren't, why isn't everyone doing it? Why do we keep... Is it us keeping them, people down or is it people keeping themselves down or, or what happens? What do I you just know? think the game is designed so that your, your Usain Bolts are, all, are already in front sort of thing. So it's, someone like me has really got to run to catch up. Most, most of the time... You're 21, 22, 23, before you realise there was an alternative. If, if I was going to go to the middle-class, dreadlocked, uh, going around Cambodia student, because I'm going to do my dissertation on poverty, and go, do you know what? You could have done none of this. Yeah. You could have done this. You could have just been a dropout and smoked weed over mm. the pot. They were like, it probably wouldn't even occur to them. So it just didn't occur to you. You only know what you're taught. It's like, I speak English because that's what I was taught. And I only I, knew scratch cards and curries and pubs because that's what I was taught. I didn't know anything else. When I, 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 <laughs> I don't want any violence for me because I came from a really lovely background. I went to a nice school and all that sort of stuff. But it was a comprehensive school and, and my, my qualifications were all right, not brilliant. But when I arrived in the TV industry, wow, I was like people discussing their scores and I'd never experienced it before. Yeah. And it was like, but I was lucky. I went boom. I, I arrived at boom time TV. So they desperately needed people so they would take people like me and I managed to move my way up very quickly and, and also so in, changed, sport, in sport it is more this is why I was attracted to language and writing copywriting initially and then comedy it is more democratic I know you get lots of people bitching going oh the Oxbridge set run comedy but they they don't they might maybe they they've got a few more powerful positions in TV commissioning I don't know but trust me you could be the wealthiest tough kid in the world if I put you on stage and you can't make 500 people laugh you are you're fucked. Yeah. In fact, comedy, even more so than football and singing and copywriting and writing I used to do, is one of the few arts you can measure with a machine. I could, I, we could get 400 people from all walks of life from the United Kingdom, put them in a room, put on Michael McIntyre, put me, put comedian A, B, C and D, put a, a decibel meter at the back of the room yeah. and record the volume and length of laughs and say, that guy got more laughs. But he the, was funny. How many other art forms can you measure so objectively? Unless you're a geometrist or something, you want to tell if it's a perfect circle. Yeah. There used to be that competition every Christmas, though, didn't it, with the DVDs? I mean, DVDs now, are you don't sell as many, do you, now? You don't I mean, sell any. Don't sell I've any. Never, I'm, I missed the boat there. Um, I, th I think DVDs are slightly for the older generation. So yeah. for you, Peter Kays and Michael McIntosh, where you've got, an, aunt, yeah, where you got an auntie yeah. or a grandma buying the disc for yeah. someone. But I, did, I spoke, funny enough, I spoke to one of the dragons a while back from Dragon's Den saying, can you find a way to gift a download in a satisfying way? Yeah. You'll make a lot of money. I don't mean an iTunes card no, stuff. I agree, yeah. I mean a box that faces out in Asda, but when you get it, does something when you get home so you have the thing on your yeah. laptop and telly, you'll make, you'll make money. That's a good idea. I'm in. You need a thing. 
It's you need a thing yeah. to wrap up. At, it's only Christmas. Yes, you need a thing to wrap that going on iTunes and downloading doesn't give you. Well, well, well move on. Just go, just going back a stage though. I was really interested listening to you talk. You've been doing quite a lot of stuff on politics, haven't you? you turn up on um, this week and stuff like that every now and then and various shows. And what I really liked about you when you were discussing things like Brexit. Are you political, by the way? Uh, do you know what? I wouldn't describe myself as political. I would describe myself as addicted to making funny whatever everyone else is talking about, which in, currently in the last three years is more political than it was. What I liked about you, though, is I don't know which way you voted on Brexit, actually. I have no, unless you want to tell me. I, 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 would, I would describe myself as bi-Brexual. <laughs> I, I, I voted Remain, but yeah. everyone I'm related to and where I come from are all like, shut the door, Polish, everyone. See, that's what I loved about Sorry. you, is Sorry, you were, you, uh, yeah, <laughs> Mark's Polish. Uh, but but um, what, what I found interesting about you is you weren't dismissing everybody, which people seem to take sides and go, uh, I'm Remain or I'm Brexit. You were going, yeah, I vote Remain, but I understand why they're doing it. And it's that bit where you understand very few people were taking that stance. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. In my opinion, what the frick do I know? I'm just a, a comedian, right? But in my humble opinion, if two, three, four years ago, people had entertained the idea that there was a middle way, we wouldn't be in the frigging mess we're in. We yeah. wouldn't have even needed a referendum. What, what the point I was making when I was on Question Time the one and only oh time. you did question time that's didn't where you I, that's where I made that point and I, and I always said I'll do question time once oh my I'll get god a few, I'll get a few laughs <sighs> and I'll never do it again which is which is a shame because they keep asking me to do it but I don't want to be in a pink beret being serious I, I went on there <laughs> I got three big laughs and made two good points done um, <laughs> Uh, so my, my point was this. You're brave doing that. I, I come from a background of carpenters. Sorry, clean. can I can I just yeah. retract the word brave? Because brave is a fireman coming out of a burning building yeah, yeah. holding a baby. You were, what's the word? What's a better word than that? Um, you were... Double R'd. Yeah, double R'd. That's... <laughs> yeah, go mind on. You, mind you, burning building or, or up the creek, Maidstone on a Friday night. Burning building for me, please. <laughs> uh, I, I was making the point that I come from plasterers you know unemployed people some people in my family have been to prison yeah well i come from that's my community yeah. as it were my mum's partner when i'm on stage i'm like my mum's got a boyfriend Ugh, stop fucking my mum but my mum's partner <laughs> a carpenter my mum's got a boyfriend um, <laughs> he says look i'm not trying to be lefty or righty my wages have gone down they have. Here's what I earned last year. Look, Russ, here's what I earned. Yeah. Here's what I earn five years later yeah. because of the competitive rates the Romanian blah, blah, blah carpenters offer. Now, that is an uncomfortable fact for us lefty Guardian reading London dwellers. But it seems from what I can gather from dealing with one carpenter to be the truth. Of course, I would argue there's something wrong with our labour laws and we don't pay people enough. Whereas other people would say, just stop letting people in. That's where the real argument is. Yeah. So I was representing the actual fears of people that I've met, real people, not Daily Mail and Guardian caricatures. And then I was giving my reason while I voted Remain. That's what was missing. The third way to vote was this. The, I call it the Greek way. Stay in the EU, when David, but David Cameron should have gone over and been an absolute outrage. So difficult. Said stuff he shouldn't have said. Leaked and briefed on the sides gone there and come back with the modified immigration shit we need to keep all the Terry's and Dave's happy where I grew up, come back with the economic stuff we need and 
I think what you would have found is the Brexit call would have gone because immigration was driving that debate. There was a middle way. The Greeks did it. They were like, we owe lots of money. We're not paying it back. I smashed my plate. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. I smashed my plate. And then we were like, I mean, you have to pay it back. We're not paying it and we're not leaving. What are you going to do? And the answer was, fuck all. We all rallied together and sorted this Greek situation out. Yeah. If David Cameron was going to look, we're going to have a referendum and we're probably going to leave. This is my red line. I'm staying in Brussels like that. I've done a fucking David Blaine sit-in or something. Yeah. It was doable with the with the strong leadership. Instead, all we had was, uh, you know, just put one inch in my bottom, Juncker. That'll have to do. <laughs> That's, that was the extent of his negotiation. And of course, that's why we fell into these two ridiculously opposite positions. One of my relatives uh, phoned me up the next day. I voted Remain, by the way, but one of my voice, one of my um, uh, relatives phoned me up the next day and went, um, uh, "Which way did you vote to him?" And I went, "Remain." And they went, "Coward." <laughs> <laughs> but I, but, but I, I didn't hate them for saying that because I don't hate people for their opinions and their views. You know, they, they've they've got their own views on on which way they want to vote, and as you say, they've got their own reasons for it. And so, Danny, my mum's partner was. We were in Spain at the, at the day of the vote, the twenty third. So we'd all done postal votes. He was jumping around in Spain in the street going, we're out, we're out. And I'm like, we're actually in Spain. Or not, like, <laughs> it was so funny. But I'm not one of the, I'm not a Ramona. I'm quite the opposite. Once it was done, and I'm the same with anything when, I, when it goes wrong, like if a holiday gets cancelled or if something, I fail an exam, I kind of like, great, bring it. Yeah. We've done it. Now I'm quite excited well, about that- it. I'm like, let's get in the car, let's can rip the rest of the brakes off let's go down a hill and see what's at the bottom it's, of it. a, it's a it's a thing of acceptance we discuss this a lot on this podcast because we've had a lot of people on who discuss very interesting subjects and uh, a lot of self-help books and one of the big things which comes along is acceptance you got to accept stuff so you break your leg you're up a mountain accept it otherwise yeah. you're going to die and it's like it's happened yeah accept it none yeah. of it you know i didn't want it you didn't want it but let's accept it now it's happened now um I, i've talked to you about this before i talked to you about it when you were on sunday brunch recently and i think it's quite um it's it's quite evident. You love doing stand up, but it's yeah. become for you an absolute passion, hasn't it? And and you've done lots of other projects, but I can tell every time you go on stage, that's what you really want to be doing. That is that is your that is where you're really at, isn't it, with your career? I I do think if you've been given the gift of being good at stand up, which I'm think I'm quite good at it. Yeah, good. I wasn't always, good. I wasn't didn't have massive amounts of self confidence. Like, is like, am I good? Am I deluded? Until I got the stamps of authority from the industry, the Perrier Award, this, that, and the other. Like, right, stop being a pussy. You got something here. Run with it. But as soon as you're good at it and get a bit of profile, what the floating bumhole arrives. And what I call the floating bumhole is, <laughs> it's your own bumhole floats up in front of you, and the temptation to disappear up it is so great. Maybe you're an actor as well. Maybe you're a political activist. No, no, you're an author. You're not. Yeah. You're a jester. Get your feet back on the ground. You're very lucky to be blessed as a comic, right? My fucking auntie Elaine cleans factories. Put your feet on the ground and be fucking amazing at stand-up. Do what, look at what Michael McIntyre, Lee Evans, this, that and the other has done. If you want to change gear, do it properly, like Jack Whitehall is doing it. He's gone... Dipping out of, he's doing just mashing stand up, but he's really going for it as an actor. He's like, yeah, I yeah. am an actor. Do not disappear up your own bumhole, because sooner or later, you'll come back out of your own mouth, and you won't be a political campaigner anymore. You won't be a Hollywood actor. You'll be a stand up, and people will remember what you tried to be. So every time I've been called over in that direction, I've gone, remember you're a stand up. So when I do TV, and I love doing telly, I love hosting, I love guesting. 
I love doing all those things. It's always in a symbiotic relationship with the stagecraft. Yeah. So I was hosting a cooking show. I wouldn't suddenly be a cooking show host. I'd be being funny knowing that people will still come to see yeah. my stand-up. Do you see what I mean? That's the way I would think, think about it. I was it. discussing this with James Redmond. Um, uh, you know, do you know James Redmond was in Hollyoaks and uh, I hope he's sitting on that lot. Like, top bloke, but he pointed out to me once that when everyone gets famous, there's a period of time where they come a bit of an arse and you've just got to accept that because yeah. one of our good friends became very famous at one stage. He wouldn't speak to us and he goes, he'll be back soon. And they and, and the problem is if you don't come back down again, yeah. that's the problem. But you do, because it's quite hard when you get a bit of adulation and people start recognising you and they start... I, you know, I have less of an issue with that. I'm sure it's very difficult to work with Mariah Carey and all that, but if someone wants to turn into a twat and want M&Ms in their dressing room and yeah. drop their friends out, on a purely artistic point of view I don't it doesn't bother me I wouldn't want to be friends with them but that's yeah. that's their problem as long as you if you're given a gift like that f- follow the gift I think staying a nice guy but suddenly thinking you're an author is more of a problem than staying as a comedian but being an arsehole because <laughs> everyone everyone will think you're great but you'll lose your integrity yeah. and then what's the point but you, you still you, you were telling me um when I saw you last you, you go to do stand up three times a week you try Always. and you try and do it you try and keep Always. it why just because when I first started, that's, that was the discipline that got me quickly to where I needed to be. It's not like riding a bike. After about two weeks, uh, no, after, if you take a two-week break, the first gig you do back is amazing. Like, it's, you've got so much energy. But after two and a half, three weeks, something else starts to happen. You start to forget the stage. It's closer to sport, I think. It's closer to a boxer. In fact, it's very. I know people that have done boxing and comedy. From what I can gather, the emotions are very similar. I know no one physically hits me, but trust me, it hurts when you go down. It hurts yeah. like a Joshua punch if you get booed off by 400 people. I mean, you literally can't get out of bed sometimes from it. And it can, and it can, you know, there's been some news in the week, one of my fellow jesters, it can kill you over time. You know, people tend to booze, they get depressed. It's a dangerous, difficult sport and if you don't stay down the gym if you take big gaps when you go back and your confidence is gone you'll be trapped between the memory of how good it felt when you were confident and the reality of the flab you're carrying and in that gap if you can't fucking rocky five it and get back up to fitness you are in deep shit how you are in deep shit how often did did you bomb or at the beginning yeah or do you still do it? A you lot, don't do it a lot, now. A you? lot less than other people. I know right. I'm very lucky, but of course, I, of course, I did when I was learning yeah. my craft. Of course, I did. There's, there's so many things that can go wrong. But the, the main thing I've learned now, I'm quite technical about comedy. The same, like it's when you speak to a boxer, right? Yeah. Just to follow the analogy, and you, yeah. so you buzzing Anthony about Saturday's going to be all the people who be like, yeah. So I'm going to get into the ring, and I'll probably start from the left side. And I'm, my strategy, and it's so technical. You're like, oh god, this is a really boring conversation. You were hoping in for some electric, mm. emotional conversation. The more you can drill down into those elements of stand up, the more you can control. I can't control if it's a pissed up audience or if I'm knackered, but I can control the sound, the acoustics, to make sure they're facing the right way. I can tweak this, that, and the other. So I'm more focused on those things now. 
and I realised they are really, really important. But when you're new, you'd go on in a room where people couldn't hear you properly, do your first joke, it'd fall flat, and you go, oh, God, I'm shit. And then your confidence would go, yeah. and boo, oh, Frank Garbrick, Nick Grimshaw, all the stuff they would shout at you. <laughs> how'd you, how'd, but, how'd three, you? but just, to, just to finish, the three times a week thing I take so seriously that I'm not allowed to publicise or advertise them because it sort of messes up your touring and the theatres get annoyed. But you'll see me crop up in a pub, a local pub with 40 people with no lights, no sound. I'll, I'll email the promoter and it'll be like, is this a wind-up? I'm like, no, I want a gig that's unideal to practice in. I'll go on and do, you know, things in a barn up in the north where it's just this mystery headliner and I'll go on. And the reason I do those is this. It's a skill you learn in the beginning going onto a room full of strangers who don't know who you are and you have to quickly make them think this guy this guy's quite good like, he's got, I love his energy I, I, I wonder what his name is brilliant now that muscle atrophies quickly once you've been on telly because every time you walk into a room everyone's like yes it's him I love this guy uh, when you're touring you're playing to 2,000 people that if you knock the microphone stand over think you're a genius and sooner or later you're going to get a phone call from a show like Michael McIntyre's big show where if you haven't remembered the skill of going on to people that aren't your fans and converting them, hmm. you are in deep shit. Because when I walk out to Michael McIntyre's audience, they're like, am I supposed to know who that is? Or, oh no, not him, he talks too quickly. You know, what's he doing on Michael's hmm. show? But because I've got my pub training, I'm used to that face. <laughs> and how do, you, how, do you, how do you work it with the, the language when you go on something like that? Because on TV, you obviously use colourful language, you're a comic, and, yes. and, and you punctuate stuff with words. That, that's how it works, Absolutely. it makes it funny. How do you do it when you're on Michael McIntyre? Do you, do you just go on and swear, get them on side, and then know it's going to be edited out? Or <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you actually... Funnily enough, you're not, far, you're not far from it. To get that call a couple of weeks ago is currently the biggest call-up you can get in stand-up, gig-wise. Yeah. Unless I'm mistaken... Don't know what the figures for the Royal Variety are, but I'm pretty sure this is the biggest stand-up comedy gig you can do on British television at the moment. So it's the it's the more common wise of its day. It's yeah. got to be seven, eight million people, and it's stand-up as well. You're not on a panel. You're doing your shit. So to get that call, you do hit the emodium fast. Just at <laughs> the thought of it, and you, it's we're talking tea time. Yeah. Family, family. So that means no, no, you can't say piss, shit, crap, nothing. And the content itself can't be too risky. So you just go through your sets for stuff that I thought was inoffensive. I got, but very, very funny. I've got loads of it. It's like observational stuff works quite well. I've got, in fact, I had a, I had a routine about the difference between high energy people like me who are always, you know, you always got a project on the go, always paying your bills on time, never late mixed with your sort of low energy hippie that we tend to be married to and how we sort of annoy each other but need each other. Yeah. It's 15 minutes long. That's how long I was booked to do. Perfect. All I had to do was bits where I go, oh, these people are so fucking annoying. These people are so damn annoying. You just change right, them, change okay. the But I did do two minutes at the top of playing around and stuff that wasn't intended for TV. Oh, so you did a bit of swearing at the top. I used one swear word at the top. Good. Which, Gets them on side. Thankfully, when Michael had been messing around for the, off the on camera a bit, he'd said a couple of expletives and he'd been talking to an American girl in the front row and I thought, brilliant. I can use that American girl to do a bit of interaction. Right. I've got a bit I do where whenever a British comedian speaks to a foreigner in an audience, it's very different. When you're abroad yeah. and you go on stage and there's a foreigner in the front row particularly in Australia or America and you speak to them and say oh your name's where are you from and they're like I'm from New Zealand all the Americans cheer instantly <laughs> they go oh my god someone there's someone from USA hooray they, they just 
cheer automatically to welcome the foreigner. But in the UK, when you go, the room goes silent, like awkward. Yeah. And I worked out what it was. So when I say what it is, it gets a massive laugh. So the room goes silent. And it's because every single British person is thinking, go on, Russ. Fuck them up. Really well. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I used to think they were, they were awkward because I was speaking to them, but they weren't. They were willing me. Go on, in fucking chin up. <laughs> so that's why I said I used the F word there. All right. I got a massive laugh. And then and I, and then I went, anyway, you're probably wondering why I'm in a suit and comb my hair. It's not because I'm a Michael show. It's because I've fallen in love and I found the secret to happiness. Bang. And I was right. into my relationship about energy. So, so interesting when, when I did the, I host the Teenage Cancer Trust gigs every year and, um, and I love it because all the comics turn up on a Tuesday night generally is, and, uh, it's hosted by a big comic usually. And then all the other, oh, not, not that the others aren't big. Everyone comes along. They all do their it's bit. It's a huge gig. It's a great gig because the, you're all, whether you like it or not, you're, you're being judged because everyone's there. They've got eight comics and they're going to choose who's the best one or who the better ones are of the night and stuff and, and um, also venue wise it's the only it's the only one in between the Hammersmith Apollo and an arena people don't realise how big the Royal Albert Hall is it's 6,000 yeah, it people it's amazing and it's just nudging like an arena like the lower tier of the O2 yeah. it's crazy and generally all the comics I've watched have smashed it a couple of had a bit a bit of a dodgy time but you smashed it when you were there you were you were very good your energy beforehand was was off the scale i couldn't believe what i was watching it's like that every night oh my god every night if, How, you, if i came no, to well the, you can't put any weight on i mean it's like if i came to your local west london pub and i and you, oh. and you were like oh let's go russell's playing the the uh i don't know the hummus arms or whatever your pub's called around the corner <laughs> yeah, he's, it's playing, like, yeah. he's playing the hummus and tzatziki let's go down there and uh <laughs> Oh, you would see me beforehand, drinking my bulletproof coffee, pacing, muttering to myself. There would you would barely be able to trace the difference between how I would approach that gig yeah. and that. That's that's what I do in my three gigs. So in the what week. you were doing, which is really interesting, is you're walking backwards and forwards. You're watching the other people perform. You're watching the crowd. You were seeing the reaction of the crowd. You were looking at how the stage was. You said, "Where am I getting my mic from?" Technical you were, stuff. Yeah, you were because you asked me at one stage. You went to me, uh, Tim. How am I getting the mic? And I looked at you, and you went, "You don't know, do you?" And I went, "No." And you went, uh, and it's because I had no idea what there was. Do I get past it or do I get another one? And it's like, yeah. it, but you were checking it all out. Because you're a pro, yeah. You they're the only things you can control. Right. That's what I was talking about earlier. And uh, the more experience you get, you become yeah. like, a ter- you know, like when Terminator has all numbers. I can walk into a room now and go, like yeah, no, that's what you were doing. You were doing that. And you were watching the d- different comics going up. You were only watching a bit of their set and then walking away. And it was kind of interesting because a lot of the other comics don't do that or they stay and watch everything. You were just taking bits yeah. and bobs in. What was interesting, though, I, I loved one of your routines where you're talking about us binge drinking. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, it's made me think about comedy and what you're still eating that sausage. Oh, so you good. like it. It is good, isn't it? But I was, I was thinking about it. The, the, you talk about how British people binge drink and how the foreigners, um, as I think that's how you describe them, but the continent, our continental yeah. friends, they just managed to have one glass or two glasses of wine. And I was thinking, it was so funny because I identify with it because like all British people, I'm a binge drinker. We can't help it. That's yeah. what we were brought up with. Yeah. What is funny about that? If we actually take it apart, is is it funny because I'm laughing at myself? Is it funny because I'm in a, a group of people? Am I laughing at the fact they don't drink? Where's the, where's the comedy? Where's, how do you work it out? Or, this is why Michael McIntyre is one of my favourite comedians. People don't understand what he is doing. Observational comedy is the hardest comedy I think you can do. 
I find intellectual comedy quite easy. As long as I know my subject matter, I can write some really engaging monologue about Matisse. You know, all you've got to do is really learn your shit and then be a bit postmodern and refer to yourself. I enjoy performing that type of comedy. Much, much harder is to look around this kitchen now, find something you've looked at every day that is simple, that everyone's seen, and make you laugh by going, do you know what? I've never noticed I do that. So hard. So I'm not doing the style that Michael does, like when you go to a buffet and you sit down for two minutes and then you get up and go and eat, like the breakfast buffet yeah, yeah, in a yeah. hotel is one of my favourite yeah. routines he does. But I'm doing it about our behaviour. Most British people, when they're laughing, they're like, they're, their laugh is, oh my God, we are like that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And I don't think British people re- have consciously faced up to the fact that we're one of the only countries that are like it. Us, Japan, Thailand. There's definitely a link between sort of repressed monarchy loving downward facing people by day and explosive sexual deviance by night those those three three seemingly different countries have those things in common um and i think i'm just doing observational humor i, I think you know, so for example okay. i do a bit about i do the bin bin shagging i say that we're bin shaggers most british people do not never have the correct amount of sex they're either not having enough or they're single and having too much and their lives falling apart so <laughs> i i do i then i then do the inner because I, I get the same face from the females in the audience every night the slightly who are you to judge my sex love face <laughs> so i then i then narrate their face saying you know i don't do that i'm quite happy being single how do you know that I need to sleep and find and then I do the yeah well that's true isn't it January February March April J June July Falaraki chlamydia home <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we do we're sexual saints and then yeah. go to a, uh, a yeah. Mediterranean island yeah fuck senseless and come home again. yeah but I don't think uh, you to us because it's normal <laughs> we don't realize it's exceptional until a jester describes it in over-the-top terms and it and it functions like have you ever noticed how your espresso machine does this yeah it's the same tool i'm using oh well, I, the, the the binge drinking one was great because i was yeah, i was sort of laughing at all the binge drinkers and then thinking oh i'm one of them well, who am i actually laughing at i'm laughing at myself here that's what i'm probably doing which but, there's one other thing my yeah, friend wayne said the other day so i wouldn't have said it at the teenage cancer trust but i have been saying it on stage I said, Wayne, right, we're all going out. It's your turn to drive. And his response is, I won't bother going then. I ain't going. <laughs> so that would not happen in any other country. That going and yeah. not drinking yeah. was the same as staying in. Yeah. <laughs> like, do, you know, do you know what? That's the, uh, really funny. We yeah. went, to, we went yeah. to, like, me and Lindsay went partying in Amsterdam and Germany. And some people go to clubs. And they drive there together, the couple, and have a cup of tea and absorb the atmosphere. Not like banging nightclubs, but you know, like places yeah, yeah. where other people are having cocktails. And they'll meet with a whole group of friends and they'll be drinking like foamy cappuccinos, but in a bar environment because they just buzz in at socialising. <laughs> Whereas for us, it's, it is unthinkable to be in that environment. Unless you're a, a godder or under 18, uh, or you've got some sort of problem with alcohol, you are pissed. <laughs> it's just the truth it's true it's statistically it is true. true as well yeah. it's, st- it's statistically true and the other one I, and we're all encourage our kids to do it as well aren't we every yeah. couple every every couple that have got together after the age of 18 I can almost guarantee they were off their heads the first time they got it on <laughs> there are exceptions but we yeah. don't go out for a cup of tea in the afternoon and test whether we like each other yeah. we get off our head just to get across the line of that first yes. nookie session yeah. that doesn't happen anywhere else <laughs> in Australia uh, America they, you know, they, they go out in the afternoon have a coffee and have a kiss outside yeah. Starbucks I mean that just doesn't it does not fucking happen in our culture how, how long have you been doing stand up for now a decade <laughs> 
a decade. A full decade. Right. So a full it, decade since I left work. But I was doing open spots in two thousand and four and two thousand and five. Is it? Is it? Is it the com comedy changes? Fashions change. Comedy change. You you know you mentioned Bernard Manning earlier and. Jim Davidson, we had Benny Hill running around chasing schoolgirls, which was a worldwide success. Are you conscious in 10 years that you've had to change what's, no, what's right and what's wrong? I think it changed before I got on stage. It probably it changed a long time before I got on stage. In the, in the 80s and 90s, the alter, it's just that I didn't know anything about it. But Alternative broke through into the mainstream, in my opinion around about 2004, 2005, which is when I started. That's when you would switch on BBC One and see whoever was your James Acaster then doing, you know, whimsical, a joke about yeah. a grapefruit and everyone would be laughing and clapping and there'd be someone like me telling a story about their dad. And we could have, James Acaster and me could have gone at Live at the Apollo in 2004 and done the sets we're doing today, minus the topical references, and it would be fine. We're still, in my opinion, in that modern comedy But are you mode. conscious that when you point out the difference between men and women could be construed as moving into dodgy ground now or not depends how you're doing it i mean again you would have been in the same dodgy ground 10 years ago as you are now i don't believe that's got any worse the way the way when i talk about men and women now i am i am careful and in fact i sometimes say at the front that i don't normally do men be like women be like unless i can back it up with a stat so for example I just did another charity gig called the Young Minds gig, which was another big charity gig um, for teenage mental health. And there is undeniable men do get more depressed. We do top ourselves more. We are more isolated and we are worse at expressing ourselves. I'm sorry if it's sexist to imply women talk more and share their problems more, but they patently do. Mm. The horrible stats bear it out. So... In that I do lots of shit about that, like men being miserable, yeah, and women we'll, lighting aromatherapy <clears throat> candles, and it, it, okay, I'm using some sexist imagery, but l- largely I've got a real solid fact underneath it. I wouldn't just yeah, we'll st- we'll we'll store who did the book selfie. Um, we had him on the podcast, did a, a good good hour and a half chatting all about this sort of stuff, and and men have a lot of ways. So do women actually, but men have a lot of ways to fail at the moment, and that's why yeah. the, the the depression's in there. Men are men are quite lost. Listen back to that podcast if you want to hear what Will said. But but it's it's quite scary what's happening now, especially with yeah. that with the teenagers coming through. So that's a that's a, a, a good thing to be doing that raising that, awareness for that. And that's why I do men be like women be like the other good me other, me other good fact. I like it when science. I'm I'm a lefty at heart, but I'm a scientist first. So if I was like, it's not true, you know, boys and girls are born equal. We're just a blank slate and gender is imposed upon it by sexist idiots from the Daily Mail. But then some science comes along and go, look, actually, this does control that. I would I would listen to the I would listen to the science. Mm. So, um, for example, I don't know that we don't know why, but it appears as far as we can test it, women are slightly better at remaining in the moment. There must have been something back in evolutionary history where it was more advantageous for men to go, right, I better think about, I better stay in what happened yesterday. Whereas, whereas <laughs> girl, girl, we don't, my evidence for this, my comedy evidence is go out on the high street, you'll see lots of girls with mascara over their faces where they were crying earlier. But now I've sorted myself out. I'm going to enjoy the rest of my night. <laughs> whereas men are much, much worse at that. I lost my temper for a short period of time earlier, so I'm going to fuck up the entire evening. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so things like that I have fun with because the jokes, I guess the jokes on men, I'm not saying, look, yeah. I'm not saying stuff like women are built physically weaker. So how can a, a woman be a bricklayer? Even though it's yeah. probably, 
true to a certain extent, I wouldn't go there because mm. what good does it do on a comedy level? Yeah, I, I, you used to get stage fright, didn't you? Quite bad. badly. Bad. I, what, what? How does that work? What? What actually happens? So up until the age of about 13, 14, I used to love, I always wanted to be the centre, you know, in the, in the school play, centre of the stage, large crowd. After about 15, 16, when I got to the tail end of puberty and girls ruined everything, uh, I was more comfortable being funny in a small group of people I know. So if we all went out for dinner now, the rimster was there and Seb was there, the floor manager and you were there, yeah. I'd be the, you know, at the centre of the table making everyone laugh. But then to walk onto stage and do it to a bunch of people, that's what I suddenly, I just suddenly lost my nerve. I guess it's just part of growing up. Um, so I went, I got this dare at work that I described earlier to go and try stand up. And although I was good at it, getting to that, onto that stage was one of the most traumatic experiences in my life. And I know, I hear what you're saying. It's not a burning building. It's not this, that and the other, but your body doesn't know that my brain knows what I do is an inconsequential string of words to a bunch of pissed people in a comedy room my body does think it it's a burning building my body does think I could die you react to the risk of public shame in the same way you react to the the risk of the loss of your shelter or, or or risk of physical harm you seem to react oh. having been in both situations in my life i can and the amount of adrenaline your body produces at your first stand-up gig is definitely akin to being chased by a gang with knives which has happened to me it was the same level of scary you shit yourself literally like like someone that's in a plane crash or something you throw yeah. up it's fucking crazy what why your body was a gang chasing you with knives that's just where i grew up we we went we went down to play quasar and we were all like we were all off our tits, so the, we, this gang thought we were looking at them, but we were just so messed up. We were sat in the corner with wonky eyes, and we got chased down the River Lee by this gang with knives. We went to hide in a pub. Another classy story. <laughs> Do you know, right? But I, the mushrooms I, were organic, Simon, if you're listening. <laughs> Do you know what, right? I, I, I've turned down, well, I've turned down probably tens, hundreds, thousands worth of PA work purely because standing up on standing in front of a camera for me I don't care I could do it all day long standing up on a stage is terrifying for me I host the Teenage Cancer Trust gigs because I really like the charity and I think it's one of those charities there's hardly any PR um, press for it yet all the people turn up are doing such a brilliant job and everyone seems to love the charity and when they ask me I just I sort of did what you said I got really nervous and I went I felt so nervous and I got on stage I was like this is all right so then now I do it for them every day but it's terrifying doing that so I do understand what you're saying I would would say two things to that firstly I'm surprised you don't find live television mimics the effect of being on stage because there is the implied crowd standing the other side of that I present to one person but the first time you were live you must have gone through that fear wall I mean you've been doing it for so long maybe you've forgotten yeah Um, probably Secondly, as hard as it is for anyone to stand on stage and do a speech at a corporate a gig or whatever, there is a categorical difference between going out and going, this is the Teenage Cancer Trust, this is what tonight's about, and knowing you have to elicit a specific response to be judged as successful. Yes. And the response that you're yeah. trying to elicit is not an applause, it's an animal one, like tears or laughter. You can't, an audience can't fake it. It's going to come from their throats or it isn't. And well, when the, it doesn't, my God, man. This is what I was going, <laughs> going on to say, because Soccer M was, uh, you know, funny. I wasn't funny on it. I was all right, but the guys were funny. And then Sunday brunch, there's some laughs and stuff on that. When I, when I first started doing a few little PAs and stuff and doing a bit of presenting on stage, it was 
I could see people looking going, oh, he's going to be funny. And right. I'm not a comic. And I don't have that ability that you guys have because you're funny and you know how to work a room and get it. And I remember being once doing a giving an away award in between David Bedil and Frank Skinner wow. at their, it was a football thing at the height. And it was ridiculous. Bedil stood up, got masses of laughs effortlessly. But me, dry, horrible, just, it was painful. Couldn't wait to get off the stage. Skinner gets up. He's a genius. Just, uh, and I just thought, so I can't. You, you felt it then. I can't do it. I can't do this anymore because I just look ridiculous. Believe me, that happens to comics all the time. When you're new, you'll be sandwiched in between Peter Kay and bloody Jack D and they, they want whatever spots they want. You know, someone might have to get somewhere or someone might be closing the show and you, the new guy, you'll get stuck in the middle. In fact, the first time I did live at the Apollo, um, the, in fact, it's sort of a reverse running order at Live the Apollo. You want to be nearer the beginning because the record's so long. There's two shows recording in a night. It's nearly four hours long. People start to get bored. So you go last in the second show. And they've seen legend, legend, legend. And they, <laughs> the audience are expecting the big guy to come at the end. So can you imagine being wheeled out at the end of a four-hour record? Uh, just, I don't know how I turned that around. The first minute of my first Live at the Apollo was an absolute... I just felt it was like you know, like if you're talking and the elevator door opens, and you go to step in it, but the elevator's not there and you haven't checked. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> that's how that was the experience of my first joke. I was like, you know, I go, oh, fine, there's no floor, <laughs> and I said something. I think it was something about South End, and a few you could see people sort of go, he's not. Wait a minute, he's just he's not being shit for a second, and then <laughs> and then someone lit a touch paper, and it was it was I think it was the gig that turned the key on my career commercially commercially what about that how did you get over stage five you did something called the hoffman i read in an interview What's i've done two what? things i did some hypnotherapy which not like where they make you think you're madonna and stuff and yeah. stand on the table and do a sambu no no we uh, just a, just quiet focused meditative thinking yeah to try and accept like you were talking about earlier I can't change the fact my heart's doing this but i can manage it um and i did a hoffman process as well which is the most intense thing i've ever done in my life which is a weak residential a combination of group therapy and physical activities that is, I would describe it as like, I've never had a chemical peel, but imagine if you could have a chemical peel on your emotions. It's like that. Right. Um, and ever since then, touch wood, I've, I do, obviously you've seen the state I get into. I'm obviously a lot more nervous and energized than your average performer, but it's good nerves. It's kind of mm. air boxing at the side of the stage, hungry for it. My heart probably is beating twice the speed of, every other comics but it's not bad it's not bad nerves mm. in fact so i came straight out of the hoffman where they go they go into everything dad mum this that straight out and wrote smoke screens and castles and won that's the year i won the award so it did its trick mm. i i i can just only repeat what i saw that night at the teenage cancer trust with you backstage it was just immense watching it happen your energy your ball of energy you're like in a zone and you were just but you were actually bouncing up and down at one stage walking 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 and then when you weren't on you went on like a wait. you went on like a boxer actually it's like you were in the dressing room it's actually that's a really good analogy because you were like the guy warming up in the dressing room then you went out you went yeah. the crowd didn't know what hit them you went out like bam like a bungee rocket you know that you know the yeah. reverse bungee where they pull you back in the cage you just go yeah and, and like that, it's not a hard. It's, I'm not slating the room, but it's not an easy room for stand up. If, if truth be told, that room's not easy. It's echoey. It's cavernous. Yeah. So comics like me that move around do better in rooms like that in the arenas because we cover the square footage of the stage. Then you came off and you were glowing. 
it was it was just amazing to watch. It was like you just, it was like you'd won the fight. It was basically you come off, you got the laughs, and you you basically it nailed the room. So it's, yeah, it was like yeah. when, it's like when watching my mum do HRT for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what that is. Glowing, it's, it's, glowing. It's, it sounds funny. <laughs> Let's, uh, hit, let's hit the clubs. <laughs> my hair's not dry. Is, is, is the comedy circuit a nice place? Uh, the circuit? Yeah. yeah is, I, is it nice? The, they, experience, the experience of the gigs can be horrific. No microphone, no audience, yeah. no money. And initially, of course, you're doing a day job as, as well as a night job. It's all a bit desperate. David Brenty, X Factory, please, someone like me. That's yeah. horrible. But the actual experience of... But what about, I mean, to all the other comics? Because you have... Great, I've not had a bad... I, ha, t- I Again, touch... Well, I've not had a bad experience. So either everyone's either slating me when I'm, I leave the room, or I just, I, I just... I'm just quite a sociable person once I'm yeah. back. Once I beat the nerves, before that, I was probably... In fact, someone did complain. Uh, quite annoying to... Because obviously other people are like, they're taking their notes, they're trying to concentrate. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, oh, I'm going to go on. Oh my God. Oh, the, the light's not working. The light, the light's not work. Going to throw up. Oh my God, I need to throw up again. Oh God, when am I on? How long till I'm on? Is it, will I get a light? You know, it's, no one wants to be around that. Yeah. So I, I, I probably was the annoying person until I got the hypnotherapy, which was long before the Hoffman. What, that was only for the first year or two I was like that. What's your reputation like, do you think, amongst the other comics? Um... I would like to think good. Right. I, lo- I love I love hosting. I'm I love comparing, and there's two types of compare. You can you take you get the ball of energy, and you can either pass it, or you can go on and just storm it and not care about how your act does. I'm profoundly interested in how the act does that comes on after me, and I take it personally. I I did something wrong. If they don't have a good set, I didn't set that up right. If they're a good comic, I mean, right, that's yeah. me. If everyone else has done well and they haven't, from the beginning, I mean, I've not set that up right. So, and that's the way I that's that's the way I behave backstage as well. I am I'm nosy as well. So people probably think, oh, Russell's so nice, he's interested in my life. I'm not. I'm just incredibly nosy. <laughs> I love hearing about people's mums and dads and relationships and what they're up to. And what about what about gigs abroad? You you got some coming up in Dubai, haven't you? <clears throat> I just come back from Malta. This um, yesterday, day before, um, I never gigged there before. <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen Malta's been in the newspapers the last couple of weeks. And uh, I mean, what are the chances? I seem to have a real bad luck of picking countries where horrific stuff happens. So I go, I go to Kenya and there'll be electoral fallout, or I'll be playing Boston just after the marathon uh, bombing. So I thought, right, I'll pick Malta, <laughs> idyllic, Brit friendly holiday destination. And that week, a journalist gets exploded in a car and they're protesting yeah. in the town square. And my mum's like, can you not pick? Somewhere <laughs> isn't being exploded, um, but so, yeah, it was great. It's, uh, what surprised me about Malta in the week was a that I sold any tickets, managed to sell five hundred tickets, and b that so much of the audience were Maltese. Right, I, I thought it's just going to be expats. The expat population isn't massive in the winter in Malta. If I do two, three hundred tonight, I'll be happy. But five hundred rocked up, and a lot of them were foreigners but that must be the internet stuff I'm doing it's the only thing I can think of I'll talk about that in a minute but you, you're doing Dubai as well Dubai's obviously yeah. sold a lot quicker and a yeah. lot easier Expats. because it's yeah. Essex on Essex in the Middle East isn't it <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, the first night's gone like that and we put, a, we put a second night on I think it's about 500 seats so we put a second night on and then if that goes we'll add, we'll add a third one you're better off starting <clears throat> a bit smaller than you can sell and adding rather than putting a 2000 seater on sale and having people knocking about in it what about the states is that something that you fancy because 
because you'd love your art. So the, the American guys are brilliant, aren't they? And yeah. uh, do you think you could go to the States and crack that? It's, it, to be honest with you, the most prohibitive thing is the, the legal and visa stuff. It's so much organising and so difficult. You need to go... You can't like just pop to Malta, pop to Australia, pop to Dubai. You have to go there for three months, which right. is unappealing to me. I've got a young kid. Yeah. Um, but if I could go over and do a week of gigs in New York, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in a different category to when I would go and do the Melbourne Festival. It's not in like a special different category. If anything, it would be slightly easy because I've got so much about the contrast between American and British culture. So I, I, I would expect the gigs to be simple i've done a couple here and there and tested the water and the, if anything they were too i don't sound glib not too easy but they're too there at the end of every joke so it throws your timing out Woo yeah woo yeah and it throws your timing slightly because obviously we're used to yeah a cheer followed by now prove yourself <laughs> i paid 20 quid to get in now prove yourself and when when that's taken away, you're not sure what's the real laugh, what's the American cheering, and it throws your time. James, out. James Acaster got um, he he got Conan O'Brien. How did he get Conan O'Brien? No idea. That's incredible. But if Absolutely you get one not. of those, then then that's uh, a James Corden, a Conan, or something. From, from what from what I've heard, like someone who's gone over there and done it properly, like Matt Kirshen, for example, who's done a couple of specials, and there's a Scottish younger comedian that's over there all of the time, Daniel something or other. It's Sloss. Sloss, Daniel Sloss. It's not quite as we think. Brits have got in their head, you go over there, you do Conan O'Brien once, and then you do Madison Square Garden. I, th yeah. I think it's more of like a bell curve. You do your special, there's a spike, and it's a pretty steep drop, so you've got to try and do stuff on the right. way down to stabilise it. It's, and if you think about it, other than Russell Brand... Name me someone. Stand up. Right. I can't. I can't think British, of British. I suppose the guy who 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 He's an actor. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not talking. About someone's gone over as a stand up and cracked it. The guy, the presenter of um, the news thing. Ah. Yeah, John Oliver. John Oliver. John Oliver. Russell Brand. Yeah. Two really yeah. with our rich history of comedy and the way Americans love our comedy, and only two have cracked it. It's very. The way it's structured is different over there. Yeah. They're constantly, it's about specials and getting on your NBC special and you have to go out. You can't just go over. You know, if you come over here, yeah. smash live at the Apollo, do some funny stuff online, smash the sets, people just go around the corner to the local theatre and watch you. Whereas in America, it's like, has he done a special yet? I've not seen him on TV. Who is he? I'm not going. Yeah, the specials are huge though, aren't is they? It's that. Yeah. Uh, so if you're British, how do you achieve that without basing yourself there for a long period of time and if you take yourself out of the system here and base yourself there and it doesn't pay out you've taken what i call the x the x factor pill which yeah. is stand on this spot hope you get famous which is always a bad move so that would be my guess at why so few british comics make it and a lot of the american comics what well, they do even the american ones who, who haven't quite made it they make their own specials then try and flog them yeah. because they you know they haven't got them actually commissioned by netflix or whoever so then they try and flog them around which is, i suppose you could do that couldn't you because you've, you've done enough stuff let's talk about the online stuff though because obviously online means you can break anywhere in the world um True. you're doing your you're doing your caning stuff yeah. um how did that come about because it's been quite big for you hasn't it? it it i was doing a series last year called stupid man smartphone they wanted to do a comedy survival series mm. if you can imagine such a ridiculous thing where they dump a comedian up a mountain in a desert and you have to survive using only a smartphone there's a safety guy there an sas guy but my, you literally have to skype people and go how do i build a shelter they give you a load of apps on your phone that you can use i did rainforest horrible i've never put i've never i was at the scouts and stuff but i've never 
I know it sounds ridiculous. I've never pooed outside. <laughs> and if you get to it's a certain age, though. if you get to a certain age and you've never done it, it's it, it, you know you basically almost build up a diamond inside yourself. <laughs> it turns to pure carbon. <laughs> so I did that, and I did one episode with a, a, a YouTuber. Told me to do it. He was like, "Why does none of your lot, old school traditional comedians, simply stick a camera on the wall?" Do a stand-up rant down it, not yeah. like not like an ironic piece of content, a proper rant, and post it. Wow. And I was like, because if you do do that, you'll look desperate, like you can't get onto it, like a bit. Oh my god, what's happened to Russell Kane? Why is he down his shed? Or or worse, you'll do stuff that you then can't use on TV that could have been worth a lot of money. And he said, just, that's not how the internet works, dude. No one cares if you've done it online. So a, you'll be able to use stuff that you've used on telly in the past, and b. There's a load of stuff that probably isn't quite good enough for the stage, but bearing in mind two million people will watch a Kinder Egg being opened, it's probably good enough for Facebook. So uh, I was like, what have I got to lose? My Facebook page has got 40,000 fans, nothing. So I went home, just called it the Canin, just, just, I'm just lucky the surname, my surname's a verb, and uh, picked three funny stories. Literally, what were the three stories in the newspapers? Nothing I was engaged with and just improvised about them. And 70,000 people watched it, and I'm like... Where did they watch it? On, on, on Facebook. Facebook, yeah. So I went Facebook just purely because my mum... If I say to my mum, have you seen this on YouTube? Right, so I go to YouTube, <laughs> right? Whereas Facebook, everyone has got it. It's yeah. like a room in their house now. Even the, the 60s, 70s, 80-year-olds have got the Facebook. So I was like, 70,000 people watch it. I've only got 40,000 Facebook fans. So I did another one and 80,000 watched them. So I contacted my mate and I was like, am I doing anything wrong? He went, yeah, do it about one thing. And wait until someone's all talking about something. So you're on the back of traffic, as it were. So I waited a week. And then Kim Kardashian had an argument with Bette Midler. And she sent a nude picture of herself online with a black bar yeah, across yeah, her yeah. boobs and a twinkle. Uh, yeah. And she sent that as a, an aggressive response to Bette Midler. And I thought, well, that's brilliant stand-up routine. Imagine if all world conflict would be resolved. <laughs> I thought if Kim Jong-un was like, you see my dick, South Korea? <laughs> um, so I just improvised that. 280,000 people watched it. Now, they're the type of figures you get on Comedy Central and BBC Three and iPlayer. But I'd done it down my shed and no one's edited me. I've edited myself. Yeah. I was like, wow. And then I start, and then tickets sold, which is, you know, what I'm in this business for to do live comedy that we've been talking about. I was like, that's really powerful. So from then on, just once a week or once, once between every five and 10 days, I pick a subject that I think people are talking about. And I, do, I improvise for 10 minutes with a camera and I cut for one hour afterwards on iMovie on a Mac. That's all I do. And then I post it. And it gets anywhere between 120, 150,000 if I get it wrong, like I have this week. Universal credit, no one cares, sadly. Uh, or half a million if I pick a subject that people are talking about, even if it's not topical. So I did one about soft play centers the other week, how hellish they are. You know, half a million people watched it. Crazy. Yeah. Half a million people watching me do stand up. So, so the key to it for you is to sell tickets off the back of it. It's not. It's not. It's initially because it, I was doing a tour. Well, I'm yeah. not now. So, so why haven't I stopped? The answer is I'm getting a buzz out of doing, doing stand up yeah. to a, a large audience without having to wait till the next time I'm on Mock the Week. Yeah. Next time I'm on. T- Teddy. goes back to the point that you love doing it. I just love you doing, love doing it. And the guys in America, because Mark and I uh, bonded on 
podcasts over comics in America. They're making them they're making money out of their podcast now and their online presence and stuff like that. And then they go off to sell tickets as well. Yeah. So, so it works both I mean, ways, doesn't I, it? I've not worked out how to make money yet because you can't on Facebook. Sadly, I've tried pushing it on YouTube as well where you can, but just for some reason it just it's there's something working. about the way I talk about things makes people tag each other in. So for example, if I do a routine about untidy people versus tidy people, all the wives and husbands are tagging each other. That's <laughs> yeah, you, Gary. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I do well on yeah. Facebook. Because I guess I'm very so- I'm a social sociologist as a comic. But you've got a TV show off the back of it, Rage Room. Rage Room. Yeah, yeah, Rage, Rage Room. Room. That's doing that's on channel four. Uh, people come in, they rant to me about what they hate. And then two of them go against each other and whichever rant I think is the most righteous that gets to go they, they get to their own bespoke rage room built which they then smash up with a That's baseball so bat good. I have no idea how it's doing critically they all love it yeah. Channel 4 all the people in the industry love it but as we know this is a, a numbers game and all four is it's like I player for Channel 4 yeah um, the, the dream would be to make it with celebrities and do it on E4 or Channel 4 I think it's a good show the thing which grates me most in the world and I've tried so hard to stop it but you know when you get to Zebra Crossings and you're in the car and people walk and they don't thank you Hmm. I just can't get my head around the idea that I could kill you if I put if I that's a good one if if I don't stop why don't you just thank me why can't you just go thanks you've stopped for me it's just a nice thing to do and I can't get over it I get a lot of driving one my middle lane hoggers one did well middle lane hoggers did about did a quarter of a million I'm toying with the idea I don't know when this podcast is going to go live but when we're speaking it's not long before Halloween so I'm I'm toying with the idea of forced fancy dress Oh yeah. And there are two yes. types of people on this earth. Yeah, I'm not people that fan. like fancy dress no. and people that do- I don't know anyone that's moderate about fancy dress. <laughs> I I get all of my center of attentionness yeah. out of the system doing stuff like this yeah. and being on stage. When I come to the weekend, I don't want to wear a glittery hat and make people look at me. <laughs> fancy dress is for people who have no personalities for the rest of the year. And go, oh my God, I'm wearing a funny nose. Shut up, you bellend. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, that, there, I can feel a rant brewing because I was really looking forward to going out at the weekend. And you're like, oh no, you've got to come to the restaurant. You've got to be wearing face makeup. It's like, why? Yeah. Just, have a, just let your personality do the talking. Yeah, I started doing a thing which put, uh, amused my mates after a while, but whatever the theme was, I went as a cowboy because you could just wear jeans, right? Yeah. A waistcoat and a hat and yeah. maybe a fake gun or something. And if you basically, uh, maybe a plaid shirt or something, but you basically dress like a normal sort of person. Whatever the theme was, I came as a cowboy. You, you and Simon went together, and of course, the air of that changed somewhat after the release of Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> Do you well, get lonely out here in the kitchen? <laughs> Um, we get, we've got, I'm moving on. We've you know, got, my name's Rimmer, don't you? <laughs> Do you know what? Lovejoy and Rimmer, fantastic names. We should be doing, we should, we should Lovejoy and Rimmer should be a chain of sex shops. We should, it? we should be, it there, should be. There are a chain, there used to be a chain of sex shops called Lovejoy, actually, moons ago, because people used to always send me pictures and go, hey, I went to one of your sex shops. It's like, not mine. No. Um, now, I, there's questions we ask everyone who comes on. So, mm-hmm. are you okay to answer these for us? Bang them out, my man. Uh, what advice were you given that has been invaluable to your life? So, in the three, the three years that I lived with my nan, between the ages of 19 till I got to university we were talking about earlier. I am a very 
lead with the head emotional person. I can't find my keys. Ah, where are my keys? My day's ruined. Oh my God, I've been dumped. Oh my God, I didn't get that TV show. My life's over. <laughs> so whenever anything happens like that, I use the advice my nan gave me. Apologies for the language, but it's, it's a good life motto. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Cry and you're a cunt. <laughs> But I th- uh, I've tried substituting other words, but no other word works. Your nan used to say that. So to when you. It was, sometimes when I'm self, I, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about if something bad happens to you, but I'm talking about you know like say I'm bitching because I didn't get the thing I wanted or the car I went for is out of stock and I'm in a bad mood and that's when that comes back. I can I can hear her. That's brilliant. And she'd be she'd be alive and strong if she hadn't drunk herself. My nan's older sister's still alive. Really, Auntie Eileen's fucking banging him out still lines. You should you should uh, that's that should make a self help book. <clears throat> That's, but if you uh, think most, a lot of self-help books, like that, I've just said it, acceptance. Yeah, that, it's a, it an is, earthy yeah. way of saying acceptance. Acceptance and take responsibility for your life. Right, what one piece of advice would you like to give our listeners that can help them? I mean, it's kind of similar. The last similar, but, one. But yeah. You and got also, when I, I do a lot of talks in like schools and colleges and, and people that from my sort of background look at where I am and just think, you, I can never get where you're going to get. It's nice yeah. that you've done it and you've done your A-levels out of a box with superhuman energy, but I can't. How can I get to where you've got? So the thing to always do is to break it down into the next smallest step. Uh, and so the one question that really annoys me is when someone who's never done comedy approaches me online and goes, dude, dude, how can, how, how do we, I've got all these ideas. How can I get to where you've got to? And I'm like, you wouldn't walk into a gym and go up to a bodybuilder who's 15 stone, who's been bodybuilding since yeah. 16, and go, how can I get to where, where you are? And he'd be like, well, obviously, you need to hit the gym three times a week, do it for five years without reward, recognition, for the love of doing it, and really slog at it, and you will get where I am. So my first bit of advice would be this. A, incremental steps, look at the next tiny job. But B, nothing can replace hard work, the boring bit of hard work. I don't care what talent you've got. If you're not willing to do the barbell curls and bench presses over and over again, you will not get there. There is no Louis Walsh judges houses shortcut in life. The real shortcut is the people who are willing to work like nut jobs for five years to get what they want. If you don't want to do that, you don't want it enough. Don't do it. Do something else. Good advice. Okay. What mistake do people make? Uh, And I think this is good. Maybe doing your job. So let's talk about comics who are learning. What mistake do they make when they get up there? <clears throat> Got any of those? Um, I always say to newer comedians <clears throat> when I'm hosting and is focus on the technical aspects like we were talking about before. So they're obsessing. My first joke's about Donald Trump and the audience seem to be a bit um, pro-Trump. It's like a right-wing None of that matters. Your first joke can be about penguins, hummus, Brexit, it can be a one-liner. None of that matters. Strike the first joke with confidence, with your chin in the air, and play the back row. Whichever's the back row, that's your sight line. Secondly, concentrate on the technical aspect. Where are the talking people? Where's the light? Is the mic feeding back? Do you want to hold it in a certain way? What's your stance going to be? They're all things that you can practice and no one can take away from you. So instead of tying yourself up in knots about material, which to be honest, it's totally irrelevant. You'll find your funny thing to talk about. Practice the craft side of it at home in front of the mirror because that you can practice. Go and look at the room an hour before. Go and look at the guy before you. See where they're standing, how the light falls on their face. Is there a funny place where you dip your head? The light hits your 
your your cheek so that if you're going to do like a grimace at the end of a punch run, you'll get that extra pop. All of that can be controlled, so why not control it? I, you know, I wish I'd met you years ago because <laughs> play to the back of the room is a really interesting one. When I when I did the Teenage Cancer Trust gigs, I did it for, I've done it for five years or something, and the first time I did it, it, it was about two or three years in, I realized that I'd never looked up to the top shelf. Yeah, big mistake. Suddenly when you look up to the top shelf, you feel brilliant because yes. I don't know why it was something just like I'm talking to the guys in the top shelf and it made me feel like I was supposed to be on the stage. Why is that? It's because, well, just put yourself in their position. When you're sat in an audience, if you're not looked at for the at all during the performance, yeah. you don't feel connected. So as a stand-up or a speaker, you should... Just not like so that you're doing like a strictly come dancing, <laughs> yeah, uh, American smooth with your head going all over the place. But try and be looking at everyone because in that when you look at, look at them, they don't know you're blinded by the lights and can't see anything. Yeah, you they feel like they're being looked at, and that connection ups the energy in the room, and they lean forward and they feel invested in. That's you. that's good advice for anyone, even if you've been a best man or anything. Look around in the room. In a meeting, in a business meeting, in any in any setting like that, use those tactics. And the one other thing that I found was good is to actually, uh, not so much for what you're doing because you go on stage and you blitz it, but I found that if I just actually stopped speaking sometimes, because I was speaking too fast when I first got in there, and I'd just take a breath and look around and, and actually pause brought people in they're like why is he stop talking (laughs) then they start looking at me then i can carry on talking and and also to ground the other thing i to give to new comics the really important one just to go back and it's also a mistake they make is ground yourself uniquely in that event and they're like what do you mean i've got a joke about my first joke is why are penguins black and white how can i ground myself uniquely in the event even if you don't literally make a joke about being in i don't know kingston upon thames you must in your head in your body in your feet and your arms only be in Kingston upon Thames on March the 1st, 2019, whatever it is, that's where you absolutely are. Even better if you can suddenly remark on it and Kingstonize or make it about a unique shape of the front room or look around. Show the audience that this is the first time you've spoken these words. They aren't, but show the audience that it is. If you achieve that, it will it will pop. Brilliant advice. Any life hacks? <clears throat> Diet. Definitely diet. diet. I, I have discovered the benefits of eating more fat in your diet. Eat more good, healthy fat. It will change your life. Don't go on a diet. Anything that ends in the word diet, don't do it. If anything, use the word nursing home beforehand. Could, can you do what you're doing all the way to the nursing home? If it's cabbage soup detoxing, the answer is no. So don't even fucking attempt it. Make a permanent dietary change that you can see yourself doing when you're 90 can you eat more steak cheese and nuts yes you fucking can so just eat as many as you can and you'll find you eat less donuts okay um two more for you last couple what's it like to be famous well i would i don't feel like famous with a capital f i can go to the shops and it's fine most of the time if i go out at the moment sort of with the hair done and in a suit and everything and then I suppose you are going to have to do selfies and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not as good at it as I hoped I would be. For someone that loves being the centre of attention, I thought I would be at the front of Asda every week, hoping people would notice me like David Brent. In fact, <laughs> it gets quite annoying quite quickly, particularly if you're out for dinner and people are tapping you on the shoulder. Sorry, I know you're, having a, you're out with your daughter, but do you mind if I... 
and they don't know that they're the 10th person to do that. They, they don't know I've been away for 10 nights and I've got two hours with my daughter. They don't know that. So you have to quickly, this is years ago I learned to do this long before Minna was born, realise that you are very lucky to be where you are and to always be nice and polite. That's, that's what I follow. But it is tricky. Mm. I, 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 I'm not in the um, papped world at all. I've never seen anyone following me around. I've never, no one seems to take any interest in my sex life or anything like that i don't know what i'm doing right but i'm obviously getting something right because no one seems interested in that ah so that's interesting you say right because a lot of people want to be famous want that sort of lifestyle i'm yeah, lucky I that i don't get that i don't want the bins gone through no no I, I always say this and uh um i bored people with this a lot of times but i did a documentary with david beckham for a while i did i did um sort of spent about three months with him and the one thing i took away from it lovely bloke loved his football loved his family but what was really interesting about it, he was really good at being famous. Yeah. Really, really good at being famous. Well, a lot of us say, I'm crap. A lot of people are crap. He's very good at it. Right, final. The, the, the trick, by the way, anyone listening to this who is on the telly and radio, is to try and keep as many of your friends before as possible. I do end up going out after records, but when have you ever seen me socialising just with comedians or just with telly people? I'm friendly with Greg James and we have gone out a few times. But other than that, when I go out, if I'm out out as mickey flanagan would say <laughs> and it's got and and i'm just out on a saturday night i can almost guarantee you the people i'll be with will be the people that were my friends when i was 16 yeah. and that keeps you grounded because they okay. just call you a twat if you, if you yeah. start acting like one important a final question um just a little one to finish with what's the meaning of life <laughs> the meaning of life uh i don't believe it has a meaning i think that's a religious stance for me life is a happy accident based on natural selection and we're just the right point from our particular star that's led to this wonderful creature called homo sapiens that can have abstract thought and do all the amazing things we do good answer thanks so much russell if they want to if people want to watch caning they have to go to facebook do they is that where, where to go yeah well they're on youtube as well um the canings will be regularly posted once a week please share the the universal credit one it's a shambles i'm not a left <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a lefty or anything, but this is so funny, this benefit they're trying to roll out, this universal credit one, uh, that it needs to be called out. Back uh, to talking about farts next week. Okay. Thanks so much for doing it. Cheers, no mate. No problem. I'm Cheers. off to eat my sausage. Simon? <laughs> there you go, Mark. Have another bit of sausage. Oh, man, it's so good. £10 sausage. Um, is it worth £10? It's very good, isn't it? I, I think it's the best... Sausage I've ever had. I'd, I'd go that far. Quite a nice little um, what's the word? It's got pecan. It's just absolutely delicious. That was Russell Kane. Uh, he finished his interview. The first thing he did was say, "Have some more of that sausage. It's delicious." <laughs> so I think that was a good present. He liked the present. Um, and it is, it is absolutely delicious. I wouldn't like to say the sausage is the highlight of the night, but it was uh, it was very good. We actually filmed this one at night. It's got a slightly different mood to it, hasn't it? It was good. Well, it, you know, it was a late filmed. night. It was a late night chat, I would say. Yeah. And now you've listened to it, you can hear the. Uh, yeah. Well, when I say filmed, I mean recorded. We yeah, are yeah. A, we are a podcast. Sorry, that's TV language. But yeah, no, it's 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 nighttime. I think it's got a different feel. Yeah. I wonder. Actually, as we go through doing our specials, because some are we have to fit in around when they want to come and do yeah. it. They obviously come to my kitchen. But we should work out if it, if it does have a slightly different feel, if it's at night yeah. or or if it's day. We'll tell you prior to doing them what what the uh, what what time of day we actually did it at. But look, I think thoroughly enjoyed that. He's a funny guy, and uh, and I love the fact that he's so passionate about his art. Yeah, yeah. And he's really in it for the long haul. And he's haul, right. Isn't it? You just got to work hard, haven't you? 
Yeah, he's he's in it for the Don't long haul. Money at the beginning. Yeah, there are a few thing. There are a few people out there, um, I, not in a bad way, but there's a few people that um, uh, who just kind of they go into comedy because they want to leg up into the, yeah. the entertainment world. He definitely, absolutely adores his art. Yeah, wants to be a comedian. That's it from us this week. Um, so uh, we will be back on Monday with more of the same stuff, some advice. Um, so for, <laughs> for why are you t- laughing, Tim? Because I'm about to sign off. Uh, no, <laughs> look, we've had this conversation. So it's what happened last time. It's goodbye from both of us, and I, all I've left to say is peace and love. Bye, 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 bye,